0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. My name is Douglas Stewart and I'm a technician here at the CVR. Last week Connor talked with Dr Liz Wright about her work with HIV and cryo-EM. This week Jack and I will dive deep into the HIV field with Professor Greg Towers. Greg has had a lifelong interest in HIV virology, and has been around several important discoveries within the field. His lab, based at the University College London, continues to work on some of the key questions of HIV virology, including trying to understand what the differences are between pandemic strains and non-pandemic strains of HIV. We chat with Greg about this work and about other aspects of HIV virology, including intrinsic community and HIV restriction, HIV integration, and strategies for drug development. Please enjoy the episode.
1: Hi, I'm Jack, I'm a PhD student working on the influenza virus.
0: Hi, I'm Douglas, I'm a lab tech working at Sam Wilson's lab.
2: Hi, my name is Greg Towers and I work at UCL on HIV.
1: Oh, well, thanks for joining us, Greg. So, uh, to begin with, can you give us a, an overview of your background, so where you got started and how you ended up uh, in working on HIV at UCL?
2: So, I did my PhD, 88 to 91, and so I was at high school, uh, sorry, I was at university 88 to 91, I was at high school in the late 80s when HIV was really suddenly starting, and it was... Uh, it was kind of, you know, amazing to see this new human virus that was killing people. That was really new and, uh, you know, it, it really fired me up. something I wanted to learn about and study. So I studied uh, biochemistry at university and then went to a PhD working between um, UCL uh, on, in a herpes virus lab, but then kind of gradually moved over to the Institute of Cancer Research where people were working on HIV and I eventually studied my PhD on HIV transcription.
1: Okay, that's interesting. So... Um... You were sort of into HIV just from the very beginning. Right. Yeah. Okay. So after you did um so you started on HIV transcription, was that uh, <coughs> for your PhD? Yeah, so a PhD on
2: HIV made? transcription and then I went to the National Institute of Medical Research, which was in Mill Hill. So that's the precursor of the Crick Institute, half of ah, the okay. Crick yeah. Institute. Is it
1: as shiny as um, the Crick Institute? No,
2: it was uh, it was run down in those days actually yeah. and oh, okay. uh, yeah, it's gonna be knocked down now or we'll turned into flats, I think. Yeah. But it was it was a fabulous place to work because it was You know, a core funded institute, people weren't writing grants, they're focusing entirely on science and doing stuff that perhaps was considered a bit risky or a bit um, off the wall I suppose. Mm -hmm. Stuff that might... I guess one of the aims was to do stuff that might be difficult to get funding outside of that model. And I worked for a guy called Jonathan Stoy. And Jonathan's passion was to understand what, uh, what controlled viral replication. And he was a mouse geneticist, and he'd shown that you could get mice and infect them with mouse retroviruses, and you could split the mice by the ones that got infected and the ones that didn't get infected. And so he uh, hypothesized that there was a resistance gene, and he spent a long time, um, 10 years maybe, uh, cloning it by old-fashioned mouse genetics and positional cloning. And uh, I started in the lab just after they'd got uh, what we called a cosmid in those days, about 50 kilobases of DNA that definitely had the gene. And if you transfected it, it you could transfer the activity. And we were very excited to uh, find out what the gene was. Turned out that it was a piece of retrovirus that was a piece of retrovirus protecting from retroviral infection. Yeah, and that was the first what we call restriction factor to be identified. Mm-hmm. Shortly after that, Mike Malim identified Beck. And uh, that was the next restriction factor. And then they started coming out uh, quite quickly after that. And we started to understand that cells make dominant negative antiviral proteins to protect themselves.
1: Okay, cool. Um, And I think we get on more into the restriction factor. I've not heard of that first one before. So a piece of retrovirus repurposed. Yeah,
2: FV1 it's called. And it's a piece of uh, gag, essentially.
1: Okay, so how how does that work? How does
2: it work? That's a great question. We don't know. Jonathan's still working on it now. He's been working on it a long time. We think that that a piece of gag being expressed in a cell can stick to incoming uh, gamma retroviruses Mm -hmm. and break them somehow. And so it's a very potent kind of antiviral protein, I think, simply by sticking to the incoming virus. And it looks a bit like a gag. And so it presumably fits into the the pattern of the gag capsid and somehow breaks it. We don't really understand it. And it,
0: is that coming from uh, endogenous retroviruses
2: within the the mouse genome? Exactly. Yeah. So it's a piece of an ancient endogenous retrovirus, and it's just a piece. The rest of the virus has disappeared, and so it's just this piece with apparently without any real promoter that gets expressed at low levels and protects the mice from
0: infection. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Okay. So uh, restriction factors in general. So restriction factors like a uh, protein encoded by a cell. So- prevent a virus from replicating, is that
0: the
2: idea? To protect itself, yeah. So the idea is, I suppose, that um, viruses have been around since the beginning of evolution. You know, the things that first evolved were probably more like viruses than they were like cells. You know, they were Mm. replicating RNA and that kind of thing. And so viruses have been with us all the way along. And it turns out if they get inside and start doing stuff, that could be quite toxic. Some viruses don't really cause any illness and some viruses kill you. That really depends on what your response to the virus is. If you make a very aggressive uh, response, that's typically what makes you ill. And part of that response is um, inducing expression of these antiviral proteins. So cells typically don't make a lot of that protein before you're infected. Mm-hmm. They, uh, your cell detects the virus, starts making uh, interferons. Interferons is one of the key things that make you feel ill when you have a viral infection. And then you're upregulating all these antiviral proteins, they're switched on, and they shut the virus down, and you get better.
1: So are these like professional antiviral proteins or are they sort of moonlighting from other roles?
2: So that's a good question. And I think they have, each protein has to be considered. So um, there's with each of the kind of classic antivirals that we study, that's an ongoing kind of debate, I think, whether any of them are truly uniquely... Just sitting there waiting for their particular virus to show up mm-hmm. so that they can nail it is a good question. I think they they often have other roles. They're often involved in signaling pathways. So if you yeah. manipulate them, you often manipulate the signaling pathway. Mm-hmm. So it's possible that they kind of have bystander roles because they are signaling molecules and inevitably impact on other signaling pathways. It's possible that they have other proper day jobs.
1: Yeah. yeah. So when you say signaling pathways, they. Uh, Like immune-related signaling pathways or completely separate?
2: So inflammatory signaling pathways. So, for example, the one that we've focused on most is called Trim 5 alpha and that actually grabs Mm -hmm. hold of the viral incoming virus and kind of builds a cage around it. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. leads to three of the Trim 5 molecules coming together in a conformation that causes building of a ubiquitin chain. And that Mm -hmm. ubiquitin chain then goes on to activate an inflammatory response, activate NF-kappa B, and uh, likely cause interferon triggering. Yeah,
1: neat. So that's something your lab's uh, specifically been focusing on? That's something. So the mechanism of TRIM-5
2: is something that a PhD student in my lab worked on, Adam Fletcher. He's now moved on to uh, Leo James's lab, and we've just sent a paper out to cell host and microbe uh, describing the details of the ubiquitination
1: mechanism. That's reassuring to know that that can happen. Mm, Yeah, yeah, (laughs) still going strong, that project. So what sort of stuff are you working on uh, now?
2: Our main goal, I think, is to understand what's the difference between the virus that's pandemic, HIV-1 that's pandemic, and all of the other viruses that are similar in humans but are not pandemic so the pandemic means human to human spread essentially so a pandemic virus is one that spreads very efficiently so hiv1 um, m group has infected 78 million people the next most common has only infected a million people what's the difference between um, between those two viruses is a key
1: question okay. so how did you and we'll get into the details in a sec but how did you, that come to be your key question was it something you're always interested in or did it kind of come out of work you'd already done
2: I think it's that um, it's that thing when you see something and you think, "Wow, how does that happen? Yeah. You know, what is going on there?" I mean, I think that's something most scientists will recognise: is that moment where you think that is a cool question. And I think I was very much under the influence of Robin Weiss, who was the chair of our department when I started as a postdoc at UCL, and he he talked, you know, a lot about. There are these viruses out there, you know, and there's this one that infects gay men and kills them. And mm-hmm. there are similar viruses in Africa that don't really infect any very many people at all. You know, why yeah. is that? Is it, is it to do with transmission routes? Is it to do with the viruses being different? Are the people different? And that just seemed like such a fascinating question. Yeah. That's really why I've dived into it. And I think also it's tractable. You've got this virus, you've got that virus. You can
1: just compare them, stick them in cells and yeah, see yeah. what happens. OK, so um, next question. Why is that?
2: Why is it? Well, that's, that's the key $6 million question. <laughs> so our current hypothesis is that the pandemic virus, the one that's infected 78 million people, that one is really good at cloaking. And what is cloaking? So cloaking is hiding, cloaking itself from your innate defences. And we think that that one is better than all the others because it keeps its DNA inside its capsid. The other ones are less good at that. And that means that the DNA leaks out a bit. It activates your immune system a bit. It means it transmits, they transmit less well, and some of them make you less sick. Not all of them, but some of them make you less sick.
1: Okay, so HIV is quite famously a very long term disease. So why do we think it's uh, an innate immunity that's causing a pandemic rather than something to do with say adaptive immunity?
2: Right. So I mean, that's that's a really important question. I think that the point is that The selective pressure that is applied to a virus is about transmission. So viruses find a niche, they evolve to live in a niche that favors transmission. And if Mm -hmm. they do anything that doesn't favor transmission, then that's negatively selected against, because it's all about going from one host to another. In a uh, acute virus, there isn't chronicity. So you just get infected and you pass it on really quickly. Mm-hmm. It turns out with HIV that the vast majority of people who get infected get infected from somebody who's in the acute phase. Yeah, so it's, that's the point when you're going to get infected because that's when viral loads are very high in, in someone's body. So that's when mm-hmm. it transmits. But then you've got this very long lag phase where viral loads can be quite low. But then at the end of disease, maybe 10 or 15 years later, if someone isn't treated, they come back up again and the virus gets a second go at transmitting. So I think our perspective is that maybe if you live in a particular niche, so in this case in T cells, maybe there's an inevitability to becoming chronic and maybe that's not a selective pressure.
1: Maybe it is a selective
2: pressure and the virus wants two goes and it wants to have another go later on. Yeah.
1: So you're almost like the like phase is like old age, like it yeah. reproduces and then it kind of yeah. just sits around. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah.
2: And other viruses do that. So herpes viruses, for example, you get infected with chickenpox, you get sick for a couple of days, get lots of spots. Forty years later, fifty years later, when you've completely yeah, yeah. forgotten about it, you get zoster, which can be a very painful uh, chickenpox virus-induced uh, yeah, rash. Yeah.
1: Okay, that's very cool. So, how long is that acute phase for
2: HIV? Yeah, for HIV, sorry. Uh, several weeks.
1: Okay, so if the idea, like, so if someone got infected, you Months basically to you want season. to hit them as hard as you can with like treatments upfront. Yes, front. That, yeah. and
2: that's quite a new, relatively new theory. So, we used to treat people when they started to get sick, when their T okay. cells started to decline now people are typically treated as soon as possible after diagnosis because you want to minimise the damage that the virus does. You want to suppress Mm -hmm. viral replication as quickly as possible.
1: Okay, and that's something that like research into HIV is informed us on?
2: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, the, the reason that we have HIV drugs is because there was a very sound understanding of retrovirus biology before HIV showed up because people had studied mouse viruses. So I mentioned that I... Uh, worked in a uh, an institute with Robin Weiss and, and Jonathan mm. Stoy. Those guys were actually people who were cancer biologists originally, and they studied viruses that caused cancer, and then this new virus came along, HIV, and so you know a lot of people switched to studying that.
1: Okay, neat. Um, so going back a little bit to what you said earlier about the, the cloaking of this HIV pandemic virus, Yeah. so um, how does that work exactly?
2: So we think that it's basically that the virus has what we call a capsid, which is the protein shell, which mm. is in inside the viral envelope and that's the thing that goes into the cells like a like a submarine and the DNA synthesis making viral DNA goes on inside the capsid and it cloaks by essentially keeping the DNA inside the capsid. Now the Mm -hmm. trick with that is knowing when to let the DNA out because the DNA has to come out at some point because it actually joins the host chromatin and integrates into the host chromatin. So what the viruses that are good at cloaking are good at doing Mm -hmm is, number one, keeping the viral DNA in the capsid for as long as possible, and number two, when it comes out, doing it in such a way that the host doesn't get to see it. And we think that that works through uncoating in complex with the nuclear pore complex, where everything can be very carefully controlled. And then the, we've shown that HIV integrates at the edge of the nucleus, right by where it went in, so it's into the chromatin ASAP before okay. the host can see it.
1: And it just grabs the first bit of DNA you can see almost. Yeah. Okay, so do you, do you get... Um... of nuclear regulation as well where you have genes in different bits of the nucleus so does this also help HIV sort of get into a gene that's maybe doing something yeah
2: so we think that there's a method for HIV to find active genes so it turns out that one of the proteins we call cofactors the proteins the host proteins that help the virus is a protein called cpsf6 and that's what we call a three prime end processing factor so it actually regulates mrna processing so it knows where active genes are because its job Mm -hmm. is to regulate mrna processing at the three prime end so hiv binds that with its capsid and then that cpsf6 takes it to where active uh, transcription is if you stop HIV-binding uh, CPSF6, then you get the same number of integrations. They just start moving around all over the nucleus. So rather than being yeah. at the edge, they're all over the place.
1: Cool. So is the capsid actually going through the nuclear pore complex, or is it kind of docking and unloading?
2: Well, that's, a, that's one of the key questions in the field, and people are split. So it's too big, theoretically, to go through. So it's about mm-hmm. uh, 50 or 60 nanometers. So it's cone-shaped. So it's mm-hmm. got a fat end and a thin end, and it's also okay. got a width. And the width is theoretically too big. But that the width of nuclear pores is based on EM measurements of fixed samples. So maybe they stretch, you know, who knows? Yeah. So some people think it does go kind of suck through with the thin end first, some yeah. people think that it sticks and then uncoats in complex with the pore. Mm-hmm. We happen to like that theory. But any of these things are possible.
0: Okay. How does the capsid find its way to the nucleus? Is there a that's not a Yeah,
2: that's not entirely clear. So for the longest time, we thought that it just kind of hooked onto microtubules. But then it turns out that uh, if you look at virus down a microscope, you can see virus tracking along microtubules. But it turns out that most of the virus that's doing that is in endosomes that are tracking along the microtubules. So it's very difficult to sort out whether the virus is inside an endosome or whether it's actually in the cytoplasm. Most of the data suggests that it does recruit to microtubules and it does travel down towards the MTOC. But the specific interactions for that are not well-defined.
1: So, um, yeah, when I was learning about this at uni, I, the model was that the capsid uncoated in the cytoplasm and then everything right. went through. So that's presumably wrong. Based on what you can say Well,
2: I mean, again, this is, a, this is an area where when we first proposed that the HIV capsid stays intact and its job was to protect DNA synthesis, everybody went crazy because they said, you know, that's not the dogma, that's not what we think, you know. And, mm-hmm. and so then you study why do you think that? And if you infect a cell then uh, lots of viruses go in, but only two or three of them actually make it. Yeah. So we can st- we call it the minefield hypothesis. If you get 100 guys to run across a minefield, a couple of them will probably make it. But okay. being blown up is not how you get across a minefield.
1: No. If
2: you look at the viruses, coming apart in the cytoplasm is not yeah. how you get across the cytoplasm in, okay. a, in a similar way. Way.
1: Yeah. So you're. So the pandemic virus maybe just gets more people across the minefield. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I yeah maybe I, it's not necessarily more infectious. It's a question of which minefields it can cross. Okay. So. I think the the, the picture that's emerging is that T cells, where these viruses like to replicate, are not very good minefields. They don't have very many mines in them. They're rapidly dividing cells and lots of viruses infect T cells because they're a good host. They're not very good at defensive stuff. Mm -hmm. If you go into a macrophage on the other hand, that's the mother of all minefields. They're professional pathogen detectors. So if a virus is going to infect those guys, it has to be really good at cloaking. And so we think the pathogenic virus has expanded its tropism somehow, and it can infect more cells. Maybe it's macrophages, maybe it's macrophage-like cells. We don't really know, but it's just better at doing stuff in those cells without being detected.
1: And so can we um, use this knowledge for anything, like kind of drugs or...? Yeah, so that,
2: that's a, a goal, is to develop novel drugs. And mm. so the kind of drugs we might develop are we might develop drugs that target the capsid and mm. cause the capsid to break open and the DNA to come out, and then that would activate innate immune sensing and that would make your immune mm. system work better against the virus. That might be particularly effective in the modern world where what we want to do is we want to give people drugs before they get infected and protect mm. them from getting infected. So in pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. So we're thinking about how you might do that. We've got drugs that bind capsid, we've got drugs that bind um, host molecules and also influence cloaking. And our goal is to, to try and uh, develop drugs that can make your immune system work better against the virus rather than inhibiting the virus with an enzyme inhibitor, just breaking viral defensive strategies.
1: Okay. So would you uh, prefer to have a drug that targets the host than the virus? Uh, maybe to the, like you're less likely to mutate uh, and escape
2: yeah, I think one of the things that we've learned about HIV treatment is what works really well is combinations of drugs. And so I think you need one of everything. And if you can make new types of drugs, that really improves your combination. Having said that, we expect that a drug that binds a host protein that the virus likes and prevents the virus from using it, that would should be pretty potent because the virus can't mutate and escape drug binding because the virus isn't binding the drug in the first place.
1: Cool. Yeah, I think we might be running out of time so um, do you have any more
0: questions I think uh, just to wrap it up we usually ask um, if you weren't a virologist what would you be what would you like to be doing I don't know actually I mean I think the, the secret to success is to find out
2: what you're good at and do that and I think I'm only good at one thing that's virology <laughs>
0: that's
1: a solid answer yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good answer it's still not the right answer which is astronaut but <laughs> one, so okay. right. 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 well um, well, thanks very much for joining us thank you interesting. Yeah, it's a pleasure
0: Thanks very much to Greg Towers for joining Jack and myself for a fascinating dive into the field of HIV virology and thank you for listening. As usual, you can find previous episodes of Contagious Thinking alongside a number of excellent blog posts written by CVR staff and students at cvr.myportfolio.com You can get in touch with the Contagious Thinking team with your thoughts or views about today's episode or any other episode by emailing us at cvr.contagiousthinking@gmail.com, at gmail.com or you can tweet us at cvrblog. Next week, Connor and Jack will be joined by Dr. Adam Fletcher to look further into the exciting world of the intrinsic community, so please do join us then.